You have landed here at episode 181. Do you have kids or are you thinking about having kids? In a world where everything you put into your body seems to be toxic and unhealthy, it's pretty difficult to feel like you're getting things right for your kids. And then comes in the conversation of, am I doing what's right for my kids or am I doing what makes my kids happy? Which, in the context of food, brings up the inevitable conversation about sugar and all of the sugar-related diseases that even kids now suffer from. So, if you want to figure out what the right thing is to feed kids, what's the wrong thing to feed kids, how it affects them, and even for couples that don't yet have kids, how what you eat during pregnancy and during breastfeeding can have a massive impact on your child's taste buds, brain function, and behavioral capacity. Not only that, we also talk about how to navigate the marketing and advertising lies at the supermarket, which include the artificial sweetener conversation, which actually might shock you. And the big question, is the sugar in fruit good or bad? It's a huge episode that will help your kids to not get sick and die, (laughs) to not become little sugar addicts that end up sick decades too soon before their life has even really begun. An important episode for everyone. So let's get into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? How are you doing? Great, I'm sure, because you're here to get another brain dump of wisdom from today's genius podcast guest. Don't forget, I'm here to support you on your journey because in 2022, it's my mission to coach 300 people to get control of their emotional eating so they can lose weight and actually keep it off without counting calories or eating rabbit food. So, if you're a parent or you're around kids, then you know that when it comes to sugar, once they pop, they don't stop. Kids being addicted to sugar from literally days after being born is an absolute epidemic and hell, you could actually argue that's probably the real pandemic on the planet right now. And food companies and the stress of everyday life is not helping to make teaching kids to eat healthy any easier, which is where today's guest comes into the equation. I'd like to introduce you to a heavyweight in the sugar world, and I mean this in regards to his knowledge and wisdom and not his body, <laughs> Dr. Michael Gorin. Dr. Gorin is a professor of pediatrics and the children's at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, Keck School of Medicine and the University of Southern California. He's the program director for diabetes and obesity at the Sabin Research Institute and the founding director of the recently established Southern California Center for Chronic Health Disparities in Latino Families and Children. For 30 years now, Dr. Gorin's research has focused on childhood obesity, metabolic factors linking obesity to increased disease risk during growth and development, type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease. His work also covers maternal infant nutrition and identifying things that you as a parent can change to prevent obesity in your kids, including creating healthy breast milk and child microbiome development, which is something that's important at any stage of their growth. His research has been continuously funded by the NIH and other foundations, and across his career, he's raised over $75 million in funding to support this work. This phenomenal human has published over 350 professional peer-reviewed articles and is the author of multiple books, and he was kind enough to send me one of those, Sugar Proof, The Hidden Dangers of Sugar That Are Putting Your Child's Health at Risk and What You Can Do, which he wrote with Emily Ventura, and I recommend getting your hands on that one. It's very eye-opening. So, Michael, welcome to the show, mate. How are you? I am good. I I, I don't think I've been called a heavyweight before, but uh, I'll I'll, uh, I'll take that. (laughs) 
You definitely are. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're very happy to have you here. I'm excited to share some of this uh, information with people. I think, um, you know, a lot of these podcasts are full of people that have had personal experiences, personal struggles, overcome their own challenges with obesity and, and diabetes and different things. But what I personally find rare as somebody that left the hospital system myself is actually finding medical professionals and conventional science researchers that haven't been paid off or taken out of the game in some way that can actually speak to this stuff on a scientific level. So I'm excited to have you here to come from that that perspective. Great. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So I guess it's probably a good place to start is just straight up because a lot of the people listening are parents and they're obviously open to looking at things in different ways is that the basic question of do kids need sugar to live? Because there's plenty of uh, TikTok nutritionists and Instagram people saying that sugar addiction is not real and, you know, all of the foods that we have fortified with sugar are of benefit to children. Um, so what, what's the, you know, the basic nuts and bolts of child nutrition in the sense of do we need nutri- uh, sugar in the diet? Yeah. Not, I mean, talking of nuts and bolts, I mean, those arguments are nuts. You know? <laughs> I can give you the bolts, but I mean, I've, I've, I've heard, I've heard, I've had that pushback myself on my Instagram uh, and, and in social media, and I just, you know, I just don't get it. I mean, oh yes, of course, the brain uses glucose as a fuel, and so so does the rest of the body. But mm-hmm. there's, you know, there's so many other sources of glucose um, other than sugar. So sugar has a lot more damaging properties. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, we're not talking about taking all sugar away. I think that that's not our mission. That's not my message because there's, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a healthy mound. I mean, everybody loves sweet treats and kids get a lot of it, but there's just too much of it. I think it's just, it's just saturated our food supply. Seventy percent of processed foods have added sugar. Eighty percent of, of of foods targeting kids have some type of added sugar. Uh, the new dietary guidelines have recognized this in the U.S., saying infants should have zero added sugars between zero and two years of age. So a lot of what we're talking about is really added sugars. It's the sugar added to food um, that is causing a lot of problems and kids are more vulnerable to those effects. What makes kids more vulnerable? I remember reading in your book about um, unborn children, um, if their mothers are eating lots of sugar during pregnancy, that that can actually increase the propensity for sweetness and sugar addiction in those children when they are born. Why are they more susceptible? Well, I mean, like you mentioned, babies are born with this built-in preference for sweetness and this was supposed to be protective. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, from an evolutionary perspective, it was supposed to favor liking of breast milk, to favor uh, seeking out of good calories and to avoid food that had gone off or become contaminated. But that was ancestors ago, but it's we still have the, the, we still have the same genes and the same metabolism, um, but a very different food environment. Um, so that's where the preference for sweetness comes from and like you said that can get amped up by exposure to sugar starting in utero mm-hmm. and then the vulnerability comes in so there's this built-in 
craving or preference for sweetness, but then once consumed in the body, kids, babies and kids are more vulnerable. A couple, I'll give you, give you a couple of different examples. The most obvious example I can give you is tooth decay. Mm-hmm. Right? People see tooth decay, kids get it much more than adults, and it's from too much sugar. Not the sugar itself, but the sugar in the mouth uh, leads to the thriving of bacteria that feed off the sugar that produce acid. The acid is more damaging to teeth in kids because they don't have all the enamel. The teeth are still being built. They, they don't have all the full enamel to protect them from, from the acid. So that's a very clear-cut example of why the developing tooth. Uh, so you can imagine the developing brain or the developing heart or the developing liver. Might, or the developing gut is another good example. We know the gut microbiome is so important but we also know that it evolves in the first two years of life and that its evolution can be re, redirected based on nutrition. And sugar is a big driver of microbiome development. Once those kids develop uh, an altered microbiome, they're stuck with it. Mm-hmm. So when you say stuck with it, is it not possible to rebuild some of those colonies that they didn't develop or were stunted in their development through their younger years? Well, it could ultimately be so, yeah. I mean, you'd have to go out your way to do it. We don't know the full science on that yet. Mm-hmm. But the the, the, the the overall message is that your gut microbiome is developed in the first two to three years of life and stays around with you unless you you know, proactively try to manipulate it, but we don't really know enough about how how much that can be altered. That microbiome development, and I know it's a, it's a hot topic in the world of new mothers, but is that one of the reasons that we urge people or lean towards uh, natural breast milk as a, a form of nutrition as opposed to formula? Is the gut development a part of that? Yeah, we think it is. We're actually we're doing direct studies on that right now, mm-hmm. uh, because the well, we've already published a paper on this, and others have too. That there's potentially specific microbes in the milk that help colonize, but there's also natural prebiotics in the milk mm-hmm. called oligosaccharides. These are protective sugars that are derivatives of lactose, which is the most uh, common uh, sugar in breast milk. Uh, These oligosaccharides are prebiotics and they help shape the gut microbiome. And that's something that we're in the midst of uh, doing research on right now. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I know it's been a debate for a long time. And and in this world of medical convenience, you know, um, women have the capacity to book in their birth at a particular time. Um, And, you know, it seems to be a race to get off breast milk as fast as you can because of the practicality of formula. But I guess, as your your research may or may not uncover, um, there's a, a bit of a biological benefit to that breast milk. Definite biological benefit, even if it's pumped breast milk. Um, but look out for there's different kinds of formula. We just published a paper this week or, or last week actually, uh, looking at different types of formula. There's um, some formula have added sugars. So, like I said, the main carbohydrate source in breast milk is lactose, but some formula is made with corn syrup solids. 
There's no corn syrup solids in breast milk. <laughs> I bet there's not. <laughs> uh, but there are formulas that are made with it. Um, wow. For, for, for curious reasons. Yeah. And we just published it. Well, we've already published a paper showing that it can alter the microbiome. We've just published another paper showing that infants fed this formula uh, develop um, alterations in feeding behavior. They become more picky eaters, more fussy eaters, and less enjoyment of, of feeding. So we understand that formula is, is necessary in some, in some people, uh, yeah. but, but there's different types of formula. You really have to be careful about what type of formula you're choosing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's like like a lot of things in Western medicine. There's there's some very useful tools, but um, I think the convenience culture we have a tendency to abuse them. No, and part of that is pushed by the food industry too. You know, I mean, for example, this particular formula was developed for quote unquote fussy babies. Mm -hmm. Um, What is a fussy baby? Fussy baby (laughs) who's crying, who has colic, and I don't, you know. I think the, the the idea was that they were fussy because they were lactose intolerant. So okay. they decided to make a formula without lactose. Mm-hmm. So they took out the lactose and replaced it with corn syrup. Yeah. It, you know, the marketing of that is pretty direct towards fussy babies, mm-hmm. whatever that. <laughs> um, but, it caught, you know, inadvertent outcomes – that they you know, might not have been looking at in some of the clinical studies early on. Mm-hmm. But even if your baby is lactose intolerant, like why would you take the lactose out? Yeah. We, like you can buy lactose-free milk, which just has lactase, and it breaks the lactose down for you. Mm-hmm. That's not what they did. They just took the lactose out. But right. that's a long story. But <laughs> yeah. the point is that the food industry pushes a lot of these things. I mean, some of the marketing tactics um, to push these products is very heavy. Oh, absolutely. Um, speaking of that, what comes to mind as well for parents um, and that kind of balance between trying to figure out what's good for the kids and trying to understand where marketing begins and ends, uh, because when we get into the health space, it seems on the front end really obvious. And so I'd love to have that conversation about uh, fructose and glucose and what the difference is um, and and how they work in the body, because I guess a lot of uh, parents and a lot of people in general general like we we go towards fruit as an answer for for many you know like get the kids eating fruit and fruit seems to be the molecules the fruit flavors added into everything to give the illusion that you're you know everything that you can buy has some kind of healthy component um so what where does that begin and end with like the way that glucose we'll start with glucose and fructose like how do those two things work in the body and where in which foods would we expect to get those yeah, so ordinary sugar, the white kind of crystal stuff that you buy in bags, that's uh, sucrose. And sucrose is what we call a disaccharide. It's a molecule of glucose connected to a molecule of fructose. Mm-hmm. So a disaccharide of two sugars joined together. Glucose and fructose are both six-carbon molecules. They're chemically identical, but fructose has a different shape. Um, and uh, then glucose and has different properties. So once you consume the fructose, they break apart 
and you get your glucose. And glucose is used, as we said in the beginning, all parts of the body, that's direct source of energy. It's a fuel, cellular fuel. Uh, fructose, uh, on the other hand, is not directly used for energy. It is taken up uh, by the liver if you can absorb it. Infants and children aren't fully able to absorb fructose because they weren't ever designed to be experiencing a lot of fructose in early life. Once it is absorbed, it's taken up by the liver and the liver converts that fructose into fat. And that fat can get stuck in the liver and cause fatty liver disease, or it can be put back out into the circulation as lipids, causing dyslipidemia, alterations in blood lipids, which is the hallmark of cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. uh, so that process of fructose conversion in the liver is almost identical to the metabolism of alcohol, which is also taken up by the liver. Now, it gets a little more interesting because this process is a little dose dependent. So when you eat an apple, uh, there's, there's some fructose in there, but it's a small amount. Mm -hmm. And it gets slowly released because of all the fiber. So that slow release and that small amount is handled a little differently. Under those conditions, the gut can convert some of that fructose into glucose and use it for energy. It's the bolus doses that are problematic. Glass of juice, which might have the juice from three apples mm. or yeah. soda with high fructose corn syrup. Anything with that fructose already in solution, there's no fiber to slow it down. Mm -hmm. It's like a bolus dose, and it goes, the fructose under those conditions overwhelms that capacity in the gut, and it goes straight to the liver. So that's why eating an apple is okay. Yes, it's fructose, or even, you know, a mashed apple or a mashed banana is okay. Mm -hmm. But once you liberate the juice, if you concentrate it, you increase the volume, and you throw away the fiber, and that's when the fructose becomes problematic. Is there any benefit to fructose given that it is in, it, it does come in small amounts in the fruits that we eat and different things? Is there any biological benefit or is it just a, a part of these foods that has carried through history and evolution that um, it comes in small enough amounts that our, our liver actually can deal with it? No worries. Yeah, I mean, well, it makes it taste good. You know, it's fru fructose is. Uh, twice as sweet as the glucose. Mm -hmm. So, the, so the, the fructose is part of the natural sweetness in fruit. Yeah. And, um, that's, that's one benefit. But metabolically, and again, some of it is converted to glucose for, from small doses like you would get from eating a piece of fruit. But no, I mean, 90% of it is taken up by the liver and turned into fat. Yeah. Uh, is... In this world of um, hybridization, because it's a confusing conversation, fruit, because uh, like fruit is, you know, has healthy components to it, um, and it's and it's you know it's good. However, in a world where we're consuming sugar, sometimes just adding a lot more fruit is just piling on extra sugar on top with a little bit of fiber. And we've also got to factor in the fact that many of the world's farms in order to, one, be able to mass produce and two, have their fruit consumed because it's sweet. A lot of these uh, foods are hybridized uh, for their sweetness. So, I guess 
what is the general the general advice for parents navigating fruit with their children because depending who you follow online some people say it's evil if you're in the keto space they're like never touch fruit ever um others are obviously the opposite where it's like fruit's really healthy and if you go to the supermarket you know there's lots of advertising about how healthy fruit is so where should parents kind of sit on that topic yeah well i don't i don't think kids need to go into keto for any reason you know for any major reason. I mean, there may be some very unusual clinical reasons where that might be um, potentially of benefit, but I don't think we want our kids going into regular uh, ketosis. What's the reason for that, out of curiosity? Why we don't want the kids in ketosis? Uh, Well, I mean, that's a good question. Um, Why would that be bad long-term? I don't think we actually know. You know, I say that, but I don't know as anybody, like I don't know what the long-term implications would be. Because babies are born into ketosis and then cycle in and out, right, for a few years until they're on a, a very carbohydrate-heavy diet. Well, I mean, not necessarily. I mean, breast milk is has lactose; that's the main carbohydrate. So that mm-hmm. that that's would not be a ketosis diet, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's there's um, quite quite a bit of lactose in in breast milk and in formula. Yeah. So, um, I don't think that's the case, but I, I don't know. I just don't see any any uh, any reason. I don't see it as natural for 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 um, kids to be thriving or growing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I could be totally wrong. I just don't don't know. It'd be a very difficult study to do. I'm not even sure. You would push the ethics boundaries a bit. <laughs> yeah, um, but. Um, and I think there's enough benefits to fruit um, to, 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 to say that we should not be excluding it uh, from, from children. I think we, we use it in sugar proof a lot for natural sweetness. So instead of using sugar uh, to, make, to bake a cake or, or a muffin or whatever, mm-hmm. we would use a mashed banana or a grated apple because you, you get the natural sweetness. Um, but I'm losing the thread of what your question was. Um, well, just the just the, the general kind of guidance for parents on whether yeah. fr- fruit is good or fruit is bad, or whether we should include it or not include it. I think it's um, I think it's okay up to a limit, but not not a lot all at once. I mean, I myself have suffered from gout um, periodically, and I actually just traced this to uh, overconsumption of fruit. Mm-hmm. If I eat a massive helping of fruit, like a big bowl of fruit, all at once, yeah, I'll get I'll get um, a, a gout flare up in my mm-hmm. ankle, and this this again is a well known side effect of fructose because fruct- that that me- metabolic process that I described it produces uric acid. So I think for for the guidance for parents is is. Um, you know, a couple of servings a day is totally fine, but just not all at once to answer your question. Mm-hmm. Um, out of curiosity, because we know kids have a higher propensity for this these sweet flavors um, and often we're in a situation where, the, you know, most mums during uh, 
you know, pregnancy also consumes sugar. So we've got, we're kind of setting all of these things up before the kid's born. The kid's born into this family that consumes sugar outside of fruit, like in these other, you know, bag, a box or a can type situations. Um, and then we've also got kids, obviously, who have no emotional regulation whatsoever. Um, so they're totally driven by their reptilian reward centers. Is, is adding fruit into the equation, like in an ideal family, obviously, or an ideal food household, there's nothing but fruit as the sweetness, right? But most families are not like that. And so I'm wondering if adding fruit is like telling an alcoholic just to have a mid-strength beer. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I, I, I think they're very different because, um, again, the whole fruit itself is you get, you get lots of other benefits from that fruit, the fiber, the phytonutrients. Um, I'm not talking about a huge amount. I'm talking about one or, you know, a couple of servings uh, throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just, I, I just would have a very hard time um, giving that nutritional advice to any parent not to give their kids fruit. I just, mm-hmm. I think that's quite extreme. Mm. Yeah, no, I don't disagree. I just, um, it's just, I guess, challenging in this world of, you know, we're creating so many sugar addicts from such a young age. Um, it's just like, you know, it's really hard to regulate. And, and I mean, then the factor of cost comes into it too, that things in a bag, a box or a can that happen to be full of sugar, high, high fructose corn syrup are cheaper than plants. They're cheaper than things that were grown out of the ground. So it's like, it's such a huge battle. Um, but I guess, and, and that's, you know, like you and I met at the Quit Sugar Summit. And so obviously this is becoming, you know, a worldwide catastrophic problem that people from very young ages are getting uh, obesity, um, liver disease, um, diabetes. Once upon a time, as you know, diabetes was reserved for like older people and it was adult onset diabetes and now it's 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 becoming normal to find in kids and so i guess you know it's it's what's what do we do in that situation where this world is so full of sugar and being practical as well like i know that you've got kids so you've got real experience i'm not a parent um so i can stand i can stand here on my idealist box um and be like but what about this so i guess from a more practical sense, like how do we navigate this space of just sugar being everywhere and the statistics not looking good for most people? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, that's why we wrote the book because we wanted to explain the science and and offer solutions. And I think those solutions look very different for different families. Uh, my kids are much older. My One's left home already anyway. So whatever we did, is done. So <laughs> fingers crossed it worked. <laughs> yeah. My other ones, you know, 16 year old one doesn't listen to, to, to parents. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, they're great kids and they, they, they eat pretty well. They both have, you know, they're not like by any means, uh, perfect sugar proof kids, um, because they love sweet treats. Um, just like any other kids. Uh, so there's, you know, there's lots of ways to do this. Um, by making subtle changes, look for the hidden sugars. We don't need hidden sugars in the daily staples like pasta sauce and peanut butter and yogurts and crackers and flavored milks. Mm-hmm. You know, look out for those. Liquid sugar, like we talked about, is a huge problem, and that's something we definitely don't need. Uh, we, I don't think, you know, that we can. Ar- there's not a lot of argument in favor of liquid sugar. The only argument is, well, what about juice? But, you know, to me, juice is just as problematic as soda pop. 
uh, or energy drinks, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Very high in sugar. Typically the main culprit. Don't bring it into the house. Um, plenty of opportunities for kids to get that out of the house. Um, try to use water as a default beverage at home with meals. And then there's breakfast, you know, which for younger kids is quite important. Most A lot of chatter now about is breakfast really an important meal? And, you know, that's a debate on itself. But for younger kids, it usually is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but unfortunately, it's done, you know, it's, it's, it's not done very well. It's usually very high in sugar. Uh, so there's lots of ways to try to minimize sugar at breakfast that we talk about. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Yeah, I think one of the with breakfast, one of the common issues adults, children alike, is just that the Western diet um, has promoted a brec- breakfast that's mostly absent of protein. Yeah, absolutely. And um, anything you can do to get more protein in there, more fiber in there. I mean, just as a simple example, like instead of putting jam on toast, put an egg or an egg white or some nut butter or you know if you're making pancakes put an extra egg white in there put some more get some more protein in there put put some chia seed in there or some flax seed there's lots of simple ways you can kind of re-pivot the the balance of nutrients mm-hmm. uh, and this towards less sugar more fiber more protein yeah um the other thing that came up as you were just sharing there about um, sort of you know going through those different different foods was alternative sweeteners because and and this this goes into the same space as um, you know the marketing and branding conversation which sugar free yeah all of these sugar free low sugar um, no sugar um, you know those types of things and obviously people the world over think they're making a better d- decision what where where are you on alternative sweeteners and how should we interpret those when we read them on the ingredient list yeah i'm i'm banging my head against the wall a lot on this issue. <laughs> i knew you were gonna say that <laughs> it, it, and i it comes up a lot and um it's really you know it's really a misunderstood issue there's not a lot of research on it so we don't really know for sure the facts 
Um, we do know some things that some sweeteners are disruptive to the gut microbiome. They are disruptive for appetite regulation. They still light up the dopamine reward system. That's been shown in humans, you know, with MRI studies. Uh, so you end up not resolving craving for sweetness. And in fact, studies even in children show that children and adults who habitually consume food with sweeteners eat more calories and eat more sugar throughout the day. So it's like, yes, the cookie was sugar-free <laughs> that you just ate, yes, but maybe you had two or three of them because it was sugar-free and maybe later in the day you had something else that made up for it. So it's a, it's a short-term point of consumption fix that doesn't work over the long term. And in fact, studies mostly show that consumption of sweeteners are associated with greater body weight, more obesity, not less. And then you're left with the fact that they just don't taste good. So for most people, and and then people will say, well, what about stevia or monk fruit, the naturally occurring ones? It's na it's natural, must be okay. But they, they still don't resolve the craving for sweetness. They still activate the dopamine reward system. They activate, if they activate sweet taste receptors in the mouth, that means they activate them in other parts of the body and um, it's going to be problematical. So I would say, I tried, you know, we don't recommend them at all. We say to avoid them. We certainly need more research uh, on the short and long-term effects, but I have nothing to go on that makes me say they maybe could substitute. I would say a much easier solution if you're baking a cake this weekend or tomorrow, why replace sugar with something that doesn't taste good? <laughs> Absolutely. You want to enjoy the cake. <laughs> <laughs> you want to enjoy the cake. So there's ways to do it without contaminating taste because mm -hmm. it's food. Taste is actually important. So you can use 30% less sugar or 50% less sugar. You can add a mashed banana. You, you know, there's lots of things you can do to still make it taste good using less sugar. So again, we're not saying cut it out completely, just try to use less. I'm curious it, with with the consumption of um, of artificial sweeteners leading to or, or the findings being that there's more obesity and more negative health outcomes, or you're further along the spectrum of that of those outcomes, is that a behavioural thing or is that a nutritional thing? Like, as in, is are most people giving their kids more or give eating themselves more because they're like, oh, it's sugar free, this is totally fine, or is the lack of is the absence of actual sugar that the, the gut and the liver are expecting driving you to eat more in the hope that you will find it? Well, I think it's a bit of both, Matty, because um, certainly there's that perception is real, mm -hmm. but there's a, there's a physiological tricking going on because, because these sweeteners activate receptors throughout the body, the body is expecting sugar. Mm -hmm. um, and if the body is expecting sugar to come in, it's going to draw it out of its reserves, which is in the blood. It's mm -hmm. going to say, 
oh, there's sugar coming in, let's take it up out of the blood and use it for energy. So when that happens, your blood sugar drops low and you become hypoglycemic and hungry and craving more calories because you have to replace that sugar in your blood. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of the argument in favor of sweeteners is that, oh, it doesn't spike your blood glucose. That might be true, but on the other hand, it might dip your blood glucose low to the mm-hmm. point that you trigger hunger. And I've definitely food. seen from clients um, that their blood sugar go up after artificial sweeteners. Yeah, for, for many people it does, and it might depend on the type of sweetener. Mm-hmm. The other thing, when we say sweetener, there's over 20 different uh sweeteners in approved in, in the US and many of them approved throughout the world and they all kind of act a little differently and do different things in the body and they're used in combination sometimes unknown combination so it's really really hard to know what we're consuming anymore well the other thing that came to mind just then as you were you were sharing that was that we call you know some of these artificial sweeteners on the packaging natural alternatives but we beat up on high fructose corn syrup because it's not corn. It's it's been extracted and processed, and then we get a bag of of monk fruit powder. You, we didn't harvest that from nature either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's I mean, and the same uh, for from stevia. It's natural. The sugar is natural. It's all you know. It's all processed. And one of my big concerns is, and this is true of the of the ketosis movement. Um, I shop at a grocery store that has a huge range of keto, you know, products for people uh, on, on ketogenic diets, but they're all full of proprietary blends of of sweeteners and, mm-hmm. and, and oils, and they're to me, you know, they're highly processed, <laughs> packaged foods still that we yeah. don't really know what's in them and uh, or how they're going to affect the body. So I think it's a concern. Yeah, and I think for listeners, you know, like that proprietary blend is them legally being able to put a lock on the box of ingredients that they have and not have to tell you. So we just have to guess what's in that box. It's like the the secret herbs and spices from KFC. Nobody knows. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's I think it's an issue. Yeah, totally. Um, the other thing I'm super interested about. So I work a lot, as you would have heard in the beginning, with um like the emotional eating and and that type of that area of things because by the time we get to a stage it later in life often patterns that were developed at a young age have deeply cemented themselves in our behavior and so I'm curious to to learn a bit more from you about the delayed gratification um, development in the brain um, especially in such a sugar rich world where these children are surrounded by dopamine inputs whether it be social media whether it be their phone that they now get at like five years old um, and then add on top of that, obviously, a perpetual craving for sweet foods. How does that impact the brain for, for young kids and their reward pathways? And then how does that affect their progress growing up? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. There's just so, so, many, um, so many elements to that, to that question. It's really hard to know how each of those things are contributing. Um, we, we don't. It's hard to know for sure that sugar itself is causing a lot of these problems. Mm -hmm. Um, 
that's hard to really prove. But we, we do know that reducing sugar can help with some of these um, issues, um, like uh, extreme aspects of behavior like ADHD and attention uh, deficit disorder and so on. That reducing sugar can can help with that and can help with uh, coping and, and mood and disposition in general mm-hmm. is going to be uh, beneficial. But in the big mix of things with all those other things going on, you know, not to mention the world in which we live and everything that's happening. Yeah. Totally. Grass <laughs> of all that, you know, it's hard to know specifically how each of these things are contributing. Yeah, it's a bit of a cocktail of, um, yeah, just stress and chaos and so many mixed messages coming into our brain. Like we see so many advertisements on a daily basis and I guess it all happens so quickly in just a couple of generations that the our evolutionarily speaking, we did not have time to adapt to this extremely overwhelming world, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, and so, something you can do and we're doing it currently because – uh, and we, we, we recommend this in the book because uh, my teenage daughter is just kind of overwhelmed right now, got exams, stressed with the world, with everything that's happening, um, doesn't eat well, you know, lots of issues. We're like, okay, we're going on a sugar fast. Mm-hmm. So this is a situation where I would say that taking out added sugar might be helpful. Okay. Uh, uh, because it. Because what we found is that it lets the system reset almost. It's like, mm-hmm. let's just take sugar out and see if we can um, observe changes in our mood or behavior or concentration. And what we found is that it is very beneficial and that you can reset the preference for sweetness. You can recalibrate the system and We've worked with many, many families who've done this, and the first few days can be tough. Yes. <laughs> withdrawals. Withdrawals, as I'm sure you know, and I'm sure you've dealt with patients going through that. And the same happens when you go off sugar. Uh, but after those first few days, you know, we've had so many positive um, situations of parents reporting back, oh, my, literally, you know, I hardly recognize my child off of sugar. They were much more um, attentive. They were staying awake longer. They weren't falling asleep in class in the middle of the day, those types of things. So I think under those conditions, there is a a moment for taking sugar out just to reset the system. How often do you think that should be a thing? Like is is it like a once a quarter or once a year? Like or is it totally dependent on the, the, the symptoms of the individual? I think it's totally dependent. You know, I don't have empirical data on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what we recommend is doing it, let's say, after the holidays, after Mm -hmm. you've had, you know, the feast of the holidays, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, Or in our case, things were just like building up. There was just so many things going on. Um, So it might, I think ideally, I would say in an ideal world, if I was writing the rules, (laughs) I'd probably say quarterly is not a bad guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do my own water fast um, about three to four or five days once a quarter um, mm-hmm. and it absolutely resets. Like the, the, the craving for anything is just totally gone. Um, yeah. And then by the time I come around to the next one, I'm like, yep, it's time. 
it's time. <laughs> yeah, so I think you can reset everything and then you kind of drift back. Hopefully you drift back to a lower threshold, uh, yeah. Lower threshold and then you creep back up and you do it again. So I think that's kind of a similar scenario that you're talking about. Yeah. I guess this conversation talking about doing sugar fasts leads me to the the idealist question of is it actually possible to have family, have kids that have a healthy amount of sugar? Or is it this constant battle? It's hard to say. I think there's prob- there, there probably are some rare exceptions mm-hmm. um, for, for, for families. Um, I, don't, I mean, for example, my, my family probably is not perfect. Um, I don't think any family is, so yeah. that's totally okay. <laughs> there are no, no illusions here. Uh, I yeah. think my wife probably thinks I should do more to try and keep sugar under, under control in the house since I wrote the book. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I have a 16-year-old daughter who's in high school. and I, In fact, I had this conversation with her last night specifically as I said, I just mentioned, I convinced her, I said, let's do a sugar fast. And her only condition was, yeah, but I can't guarantee it's school. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, the stuff that just gets thrown at them at school is just, you know, unbelievable. Yeah. So, um, I think then, you, you know, it becomes very difficult because then my kids suddenly not going to do all the things that all the other 16 year olds are doing. Mm-hmm. Then it becomes a social issue. It becomes a social issue. And I actually learned from that that apparently every day the school makes cookies. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> you think it would be in the school's best interest to not supply sugar because they would be focused? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, no, I mean, not at all, no. I mean, the, this is an issue in public schools and private schools in the U.S. I don't know about it in Australia, but it's a huge problem. I mean, you mentioned the uh, chocolate milk Mm-hmm. Um, or was that I've done two of these today was that you or was that the earlier conversation yeah no you mentioned chocolate milk before yeah. yeah so big you know lots of issues and this is just the schools think they're doing the right thing by oh it's healthy mm-hmm. nutrition it's milk yeah just with a little bit of sweetness added <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah no well and then that I guess as well leads me to ask another question, thinking about trying to get this right with kids. Do you know if there's a relationship between families that are strict on it as kids? Does that lead to a behavioral rebellion as they go into their early 20s where they're like, I wasn't allowed to have sugar at home. I didn't feel like I was allowed to do what all the other kids were doing. And so come 21, 25, 30, um, we've got you know, obese, young obese adults because they're kind of rebelling against that exclusion that they felt they had as kids? That's a real danger and that's one one reason why we don't want to put sugar on a pedestal. We don't, we don't want to, you know, victimize it too much and we try to focus more on moderation and healthy amounts because I think there is a big danger of that backfiring mm-hmm. um, in, in, in the future once kids leave the house they're like you know my parents wouldn't let me have sugar and i'm just going to party you know 24 on on sugar and and some of that is going to happen like i said i do have one daughter in college and probably i wish it was you know her, her diet was a bit better but then on the other hand i think she does great she's like 
fends for herself and makes all her own meals and is doing great. So, mm-hmm. um, but I, th- I think there has to be the right balance because I think there is a huge danger of that over strictness early on backfiring later. And we have yeah. to really watch out for that. Yeah. I definitely did that when I went to university. It was just rice, chocolate, beer for about a solid three years until I just felt so terrible that I was like, I've got to change this. <laughs> it certainly happens, yeah. So um, my final question, I guess, um, before I, we sort of wrap up is how have you lasted so long with all the giant behemoths of food companies and billion-dollar, trillion-dollar food industry, have you had any serious pushback in your career? Like, are people trying to shut you down? Like, what's going on? Well, yeah, it, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, okay, I'm waiting for the next one, and I'm not sure where it's coming from. Right. Because um, actually the, the new paper that I mentioned earlier is targeting one specific infant formula. Ooh. Singling out a brand, uh-oh. <laughs> uh, but uh, it was 10, when did we publish? 10 years ago when we published our first paper where, okay, this was the simplest experiment ever. We just analyzed soda. We, we, we bought different sodas from different supermarkets and theaters and even got samples from different soda fountains. And we sent it off to the lab for analysis Mm-hmm. Because we simply wanted to know what was in them, particularly fructose. Because food companies say they make soda with 55% high fructose corn syrup. But we, you know, that's just what they say. Uh, so we wanted to know, just for our research purposes, how much fructose are they consuming if they consume a can of soda? You'd think we should know that, right? Yeah. Uh, but we don't, or we didn't. So we sent them off to be chemically analyzed. And the results were surprising because we found that sodas had about 60, 65% of the sugars were fructose. Yeah, wow. Another, what, 10%. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't sound like it's a lot more, but if you do the math, it's actually shifting the balance. Like if something's 50 50, it's even. But if it's 60 40, that means there's 50% more of the fructose than yeah. the glucose, right? Yeah. Um, so we published that paper, and I had literally, in in your words, they literally tried to shut me down. I mean, wow. I had, you know, calls from people who I didn't even know from different trade groups I didn't know. I thought at first they were friendly trying to help me but they literally said you need to retract this paper it wasn't done right your analysis is flawed Mm -hmm. and um, I said well how do you know do you have data (laughs) to show otherwise Uh, and it's been through peer review and that's there's you know that's the mechanism for science you do a study you publish and so we got other calls and I, had, I gave a lecture once and I had somebody from Coca-Cola was there, stood up in the end of the lecture and basically like, you know, do you, you know, shot me down mm-hmm. scientifically, reputation wise and all the rest of it. 
Wow. Um, we went back and redid the study. We had the same. We had similar samples sent to three independent labs. We verified the results um, with different methodology. We published that paper a couple of years later. So, and now it's emerging. I've seen some communication from the food industry that soda streams in theaters and malls do use. 65% high fructose corn syrup. Right. So we're beginning to um, acknowledge that. But it was pretty uh, pretty scary for a while. There was also a long time where, um, I don't know if you know the story about how the sugar industry tried to sue the corn industry. Do you know that story? No, please share. <laughs> well, uh, the corn industry um, who make who the corn refiners who make high fructose corn syrup try to say that high fructose corn syrup is the same as sugar, mm-hmm. even try to change the name to corn sugar. Uh, and the sh- sugar industry sued them because they said, no, high fructose corn syrup is not the same as sugar, it's worse. And I got kind of involved in that whole legal battle for a while. Oh, wow. That would have been entertaining. <laughs> yes, it was very interesting. They, 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 they later settled in court, and nobody knows the true outcome of the of, of, of the suing because the, there was a counter suit. It was very complicated. Yeah, and when you've got those kind of dollars, you can uh, request for a sealed courtroom. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, Michael, where can everybody find you online? Like I know that there's parents whose brains are falling apart right now because they've just learnt so much and they're starting to think of things differently with their kids. So where can they find you to get more of your stuff? Yeah, we're on social media, Instagram and Facebook at at SugarproofKids. Our website is SugarproofKids.com and the book is available Mm-hmm. Anywhere books are sold in all formats, hardback, paperback, Kindle, audio. It's a real book in real different formats. So it's a brilliant book. I loved it. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you sending out a copy. Um, and from you've had such an amazing career and such a successful career. And so from that journey that you've been on, what do you think at this point in time is one piece of health information that you wish more people knew about? Well, I, th- I think uh, you know, liquid sugar is, is is is. There's no place for for liquid sugar, really. I think you know, soda, juice, energy drinks. That's an easy shift that you that any that anyone can make. And really, you know, I know there's all kinds of diets out there, and people have different preferences for keto diets, paleo diets, vegetarian, vegan, whatever. I think. Our single message applies across, you know, whatever that uh, preference is that you can cut sugar and still get the benefits of that diet. So just look for ways to cut hidden sugars, to cut out the liquid sugars and enjoy more whole food. So, you know, like many people, it's basically moving away from processed foods to the to, 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 to the joys of whole food, wherever wherever you are on that spectrum, which is the other thing I would say that, yes, this can be overwhelming, but like in tennis, when things are overwhelming, we just say one point at a time. 
And the same is true here. It's just one small change at a time could make a big difference if you build on it. So just go for small changes over time. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Michael. I really appreciate your time, your wisdom, your knowledge, and all of the work you do. Um, And I know that everybody's going to love it. So thanks so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I know we've we've, uh, been talking about doing this for a while, and I'm so glad we got to do it. Thanks for your patience um, and for all you're doing to spread the wisdom and the knowledge. I mean, that's so you know, we need more of, we need to reach more people. So thank you for all you're doing too. Appreciate it. I appreciate those comments. And for all the listeners, if you've enjoyed this episode, all of Michael's links will be down in the show notes below. So jump onto social media, take a screenshot, share it with your friends or any parents that might need to hear this and we'll get the good word out to the people. So we're going to wrap it up here, but thanks again, Michael, and we'll chat to you really soon. My pleasure. Lovely to see you, everyone. Lovely to see you. Bye. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use. And we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.